to the Beyond the Diagnosis podcast, where we strive to bring you useful and timely information to inspire and encourage you on your journey with histiocytosis. This is episode 18, Beauty from Ashes, channeling grief to make a difference with histio spouse, Michelle Fay. I'm your host, Kathy Wisniewski. This episode of the podcast is a little bit different than anything we've done before, but one that I think you'll find very valuable and powerful. Today, we'll hear the story of Michelle Fay. Michelle's husband, Dave, a firefighter and community servant, battled with HLH a few years ago, and unfortunately, in the end, it took his life. I invited Michelle to be a guest on the podcast after hearing just a small portion of her story in our April episode about the Histiocytosis Association's new ambassador program. I knew right away that I wanted her to share more of her story with our Histio community, and I'm so glad that she agreed. Michelle was one of our first ambassadors, and her inspiration to take on this noble work came directly from not only her experience with her husband and HLH, but also as a way to fulfill Dave's final three wishes. I won't give away too much. I'd rather that you hear it from Michelle in her own words, but you'll hear all of this and more in today's episode. So let's get started. Hello, and a very special welcome to our Histio community and listeners. Now, today's episode is one in which we'll explore kind of the sad and the somber side of histiocytosis, a side which is, quite frankly, unacceptable. I have with me today a very special guest, Michelle Fay, who you might remember from our April podcast about the Histiocytosis Association's new ambassador program. In that episode, Michelle touched on how her histio experience led her to become an ambassador, and today she's here to share more of that journey with us. Now, this is the ugly side of histio, the side that is all too common and perhaps not spoken about enough. This disease can and does at times progress in a way that leads to the worst outcome one could imagine. And today we want to talk about that side of things. Today we want to hear firsthand from someone who experienced the unthinkable in hopes that we can raise awareness about this disease and progress further, faster with diagnoses, treatments, and cures. With all of that said, Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. We are excited to have you. So why don't we just start out by you telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your husband, and maybe um, some of your your love story. Well, I have been a nurse. Um, I'm going into my third decade, actually into my fourth decade of nursing. So I come from a medical background, and Dave was a professional firefighter for 39 years, and he had actually started serving as a volunteer fighter, firefighter at 19. So his whole life had been the fire department, um, the ambulance. He was an ambulance EMT. So he was a paramedic. And for the last 18 years of his career, he was the captain at Spokane Valley. I am also a massage therapist and I'm finishing a degree in integrated health so that I can bring more modalities into the practices that I do for healing. That's super important to me. And all of those things were actually used when when Dave was ill. So um, in in terms of our love story, it was Dave and I um, met later in life and had a whirlwind, wonderful romance and lots of fond memories that was unfortunately cut way short by this disease. A lot of our love story actually 
really became obvious when he was sick. Cause I think when you're fighting for somebody's life, you know, your true essence of yourself comes out. And mm-hmm. so there was an, an incredible bond even more so than, than we had before he was ill because we were partners in this, you know, we were fighting um, for his life because mm-hmm. it was fast and we had to make, you know, a lot of decisions on everything from medication to comfort to where we were going to stay and, and how we were going to progress with treatment options were, of course, very limited. Right. Oh, um, I hate that for you. I wish that things were, were different, but um, I think that one of the one of the beautiful things in life is when we get to experience a love like that. And, and, you know, they say it's better to have loved than have and lost than have not never loved at all. So I'm, I'm glad that you had that with him. Um, but I'm so sorry for your loss and um, for what I'm, I know still feels like it's missing. Tell us a little bit about maybe um, Dave's career and how he got into firefighting. Like what was it about that, that interested him? Well, they're all adrenaline junkie, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or something about rushing into a building, burning uh, a building that is burning that is not normal to the rest of us. <laughs> but it was also the EMS side of Dave. He he was, you know, again, they have to make snap decisions in the field. They don't have, you know, some doctor giving them orders, and he loved the. The, the quick response that it took to save lives or to extricate somebody from a car. He, he, I would always laugh, say he fell into the fire department accidentally. He almost on a challenge took the civil servant test and um, passed it. He was the second of, you know, hundreds of people that took it. And that really started his professional career. So it it became from the adrenaline junkie doing it as a volunteer to the ambulance to coming over. He started at Kootenai County in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and then eventually came to Spokane Valley and just loved it. He loved the people. He he really enjoyed not just that. He enjoyed the other thing like the fill the boot and working with uh multiple sclerosis and playing Santa Claus. He played Santa Claus every year on the little um, ice cream truck that we have converted at Spokane Valley to go out and pass out toys. And he was really into the community service Mm -hmm. aspect of, uh, because it's a community. And his least favorite thing I'd have to say was wildland fire. He always say that's a young man's game. So (laughs) when he made captain, he used to say rank has privilege. (laughs) <laughs> but he was always the first to take a call back or to help a fellow firefighter. He was the president of our local union, and he was also the president and then vice president of our benevolent. And the benevolent is a community of firefighters that they have monies that are donated for, through various things that if somebody can't pay their electricity or if somebody can't pay rent or just needs something that they can, they take it to a vote. And he was always very generous. He donated to the George Sly Foundation, which is a, in honor of one of our fallen firefighters, a fund that helps non-traditional scholarships through our local community college. And in fact, in the hospital, there was a nurse who took care of Dave 
who was a recipient of that scholarship as a single mom and had to put oh, her three wow. years in school. And in fact, that was this beautiful story as they made the connection as nurse and patient. And I watched this beautiful moment as I stood back and, and watched her thank Dave because he had been the, the highest contributor to that fund and basically uh, through school, but they had never known each other. Right. So he had a heart as big as the Grand Canyon and was always the first to help somebody, whether it be with money or just lending a helping hand, mowing a lawn. And that was all part of his love of that culture of being a firefighter because it's truly a brotherhood. Right. Sounds like he really um, loves people and, and loved being able to help in any way that he could. So what a beautiful story. Now, what about you and your background as a nurse? What, what got you into nursing? I wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> <laughs> and I decided, I actually, my original uh, background and degree is in education. I was an English teacher and decided I didn't want to politic. Mm-hmm. Took a year off school and went to nursing school. I think the love of that happened. My grandmother um, in her later years always boarded three men and she would cook and clean and take them in church and was their caregiver. So I literally grew up in what we would consider now an adult family home. So I grew up with grandparents that really took care of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I started as a candy striper and I think that just led to the natural progression of being a nurse. Wow. Great. So how, how would you say that, um, your nursing background and Dave's EMT background helped you on this journey when, when he got sick? Well, I think it helped in two ways. One, we actually understood the severity once we got over somebody spelling out on a whiteboard, HLH. Um, it, you know, I could see signs and symptoms like I'm like, you're jaundice and you're, and, and then I could speak to the physicians and the nurses. I always say I speak medical, you know, I can use the technical language. They also realized that I didn't, um, always believe what they told me. And that's really where the fight, and I mean that in a good way, started because doctors, nobody in Spokane had ever seen HLH except one physician. And we have teaching hospitals here. Mm. So there was a lack of knowledge. And when these doctors tried to throw, well, it's this, it's this, it's this. And I'd say, no, it's not. Look at, I could read test results. I could read all the lab work. And Mm -hmm. I would just be in there. They called me Princess Bulldog because I would just (laughs) go in there and say, I'm not accepting this as a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Or they brushed over it and said, well, Dave's fine. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm. no, no, he's not fine. Mm -hmm. Um, We had less of a fear of the medical system because we both knew how it, it works. I know who to call. When I needed an ethical committee, I called one at, you know, 2330 at night and they tried. I said, I know who's on call. Get them all in here. I need every discipline in here right now. So that that knowledge really assisted us to to bulldog through so much. As you know, with this disease, there's just 
unimaginable amounts of craziness going on because no one knows what's going on, especially if no one had ever seen HLH. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a, that's a real problem. It's a real gap in you know, the work that we're doing, trying to um, educate the physicians more to be able to recognize this and to know what it is and to then, you know, further know how to treat more quickly so that we can have better outcomes. So yeah, it's uh, like I said in the beginning, it's it's unacceptable the way the way some things still are, and of course, you know, it takes time to you know do the research and all of that. But um, I think I think that you know we are all on the same page about wanting to get that research done and and to be able to fund the right research so that these kinds of things don't happen anymore. So what was what was he actually experiencing in the beginning? What was that thing that made you say, we need to go seek medical attention? Well, we had actually, you know, hindsight is always 2020, about 18 months or so prior to Dave actually collapsing, he had experienced some strange symptoms. One was he had no head rotation, just out of the blue. And I'm like, that's odd. And then one day he got up and he was not able to roll through or step down in his feet. And I was like, you know, this is a a guy who went to the gym and was in great shape. In fact, at the fire department, even though he'd been a firefighter that long, had one of the best physicals ever, Mm, um, was in super stellar shape. And so we had been treating that with chiropractic and, and, um, you know, a natural path. We finally went back to his firefighter um, physician and they tested him. They thought he had rheumatoid arthritis, but he's like, you're too young. Mm. So that's really where everybody started getting a little bit baffled is why all of a sudden was he experiencing these symptoms that were, and they were painful. And he had to drive like turning his entire torso around to look because he literally could not move his head. Wow. And it seemed to stay there for, for a while. And, you know, Dave just never complained about anything. And he um, just dealt with stuff. And he then suddenly started experiencing other symptoms. And we started looking at the liver. People thought he had cirrhosis. And it, it kind of led, you know, those symptoms. They said they thought he had Wilson's disease. And so then started this craziness of his chiropractor and his primary care and the pain management doctor all scrambling for some reason of what was going on with him. And then I noticed one day we were standing in the kitchen and I said, well, if I didn't know any better, you look really jaundice. And his eyes had been jaundice. I attributed it to allergies. And looking back, I think maybe this was in his body a lot longer than we think because this was kind of a normal thing, but he was definitely very, very jaundiced. Mm. We were going for series of tests, you know, hepatitis, you know, could he had hepatitis? We even tested for AIDS because as a firefighter, especially in a paramedic back in the day, you know, they didn't wear the protection that we do now Mm -hmm. and nobody could figure it out. And we had just done actually a barium swallow because Dave started to lose the ability to swallow and had dysphagia taste. You know, he'd say, what's in this food? Everything tasted and smelled awful to him. Mm. And it was a Friday night. We had 
this barium swallow. I brought him home. He fell asleep on the couch and I thought, well, I'm just going to leave him there because he was slightly sedated. And he got up literally the next morning and collapsed and hit him in the car. And we went to the hospital and that started our journey through seven and a half months of what I would now consider a living hell. Mm. Wow. Now, when you were going through this and kind of seeing these, uh, these symptoms and going and visiting these different doctors, did you feel like there was any kind of a sense of urgency with the doctors to figure out what was going on? No. And in fact, a lot of our response was, well, look at Michelle, I think my, the famous last words, I think you're overreacting. Mm. He's a healthy, young, vibrant guy. And I, I would say, I don't know what guy you're looking at, but I'm looking at Dave and he is not well. He also started to fall suddenly, which Mm. was really odd. I said, why, you know, that, that, so I was leaning towards, did we suddenly develop Parkinson's? Do we have essential train? He also had essential tremors and couldn't hold a fork and he would shake and I started to feed him. And so I hid a lot of that. I hope he's not listening. (laughs) You know, I really tried to guard his, his dignity, but I would say to these doctors that in a visit, I said, I'm feeding this guy and he's falling and he's jaundice and there's something wrong with him. I don't know what's wrong with him, but there's something really wrong with him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that um, one of the things that is really important to remember, and I know that I've heard, you know, working with the society, I've heard doctors talk about this before. Um, so I think they're they're kind of finally coming, you know, in tune to it, is that no one knows somebody's um, body or symptoms better than that person and their closest loved ones. And so when a person or a loved one says, no, there's something wrong. Doctors need to listen to that because just because someone may look normal, may look like there's nothing happening, you know, better, you know, that this is not normal for this person or for yourself or whatever that is. So definitely some work that we need to do there as well. While you were going through all of this, what was going through your mind? What were you experiencing? I was baffled. Because the symptomology does, you know, like I said, it's like, if I didn't know any better with the roll through and the tremors, it's like, are we looking at Parkinson's? So my mind was going through diagnosis that I were familiar with, looking at his symptoms. The other thing was the frustration with not being able to get into a physician, Mm -hmm. not being able to get in soon enough, and basically being blown off. Their assumption was because I have a medical background that sometimes a little knowledge is not okay. And it was like, they, there was this disconnect. It's I'm not just a nurse. I'm Dave's wife. Mm -hmm. And I know him on the most intimate relationship on the face of the planet and something is wrong. And I wanted a doctor to stop, not, you know, be on the computer and look and, and figure something out, at least try to make a plan of action instead of sending him from physician to physician to physician. And I even had one physician said, I said, I want him tested for, you know, obviously hepatitis. 
And I said, I need you to, because we thought maybe hep C at one point, you know, and I need you to test him for full-blown HIV and AIDS. Well, Michelle, we wouldn't want to offend you by doing that. I said, offend me. Um, first of all, if Dave had either, I need to know mm-hmm. because I need to be tested. And again, I was told I was overreacting and it wasn't, you know, how would Dave, I said, think of all the blood products he has dealt with, you know, neurologically think of the smoke and Dave also cleaned the MSA masks and backpacks. That was part of his second job. So Mm -hmm. he repaired those and cleaned those. So he had a lot of exposure to a lot of toxins. So we could be looking at something neurological, but I felt very discounted in my own community. Mm. Makes you wonder. It does make you wonder. And, and, you know, at the same time, I, I understand it. I understand their perspective to an extent because, you know, it's, it's, they don't want to alarm and they don't want to, you know, make snap judgments before doing all the proper testing and all of that. But I don't, I don't know the answer (laughs) or how we get there, but, um, I know that that we are working on it and hopefully before too long that, you know, we'll be able to, and, and not just for histiocytosis, for all diseases and, and things, um, you know, there's a lot that these doctors deal with and a lot that they have to know and hold in their heads and things. But um, I feel like, I feel like we can do better. We, well, and I think part of that is the education piece. Mm-hmm. Think outside the box. I challenged all my, you know, we had, 63 physicians and 93 total because they were following because they asked. So I wanted it to be a teaching moment as I call it. Remember when you're all in medical school and you're real excited and you thought outside the box, think outside the box. Mm -hmm. The problem, one of the major problems with our system is they're taught to write script. And if something doesn't align with what they're taught that medications for, they're almost paralyzed Mm. because the American medical system does not allow for thinking. It allows to treat based on symptomology or what they think the symptomology is. They perseverated so long on his liver over and over. And after the fourth biopsy in which they literally punctured his liver and gave him a two liter hematoma, I, I said, how many times are you going to biopsy the same liver with the same results? You're wasting precious time doing the same thing over and over. And so I saw a lot of time wasted because one doctor was just so sure we spent months with a liver physician. There was nothing wrong with his liver. So that again, the, and the other really big thing that I hammered home to these um, physicians was stop looking at him. You know, I'd have a pulmonologist and a cardiologist and a hematologist, but they weren't working in concert. They were working Mm -hmm. so individually. In fact, I would find treatments that were counterindicated and medications that were counterindicated for other parts of his body. So I used to say, remember, a body is an entire system. It functions together. And we've gotten so specialized that sometimes we forget that in medicine. Yes, it's yes, he has lungs and yes, he has a liver and yes, we have blood, but it, it's 
an entire system. And that was a huge frustration for me to continually catch orders that were completely contraindicated in, in other areas. And so I, I got to the point where they were not allowed to administer medication unless they actually put me on a Zoom if I couldn't be there, if I was at work and no procedure could be done without me present hmm. because I, I, so many mistakes were being made and I felt like eventually they were just all going wild with, you know, let's do this, let's do that, let's do that. But it, none of it would, was making any sense. Right. You mentioned earlier that uh, you're studying to be uh, your integrative health um, studies. And uh, I'm also an integrative nutrition health coach. So, you know, I, I completely understand the importance of these things and, and understanding that the body is one complete system and one thing affects the other. And I think you're right. I think we have gotten so specialized and there is a, a time and a place for that. But um, I think we do need to, like you said, think outside the box and think about how, you know, one thing can affect something else in the body and kind of look in that direction as well. So how did, how did this story then progress? Like how long did everything take and, and what were you going through throughout this? Well, from diagnosis to Dave's death was about seven and a half months. So what happened was we were up at our hospital, Sacred Heart, after Dave collapsed and he's in the ER and of course they're pulling blood work and this and that. And Dr. Manriguez, who is a teaching physician, was the first doctor I had contact with outside our regular doctors in the ER. And he came out and brought Dave's blood work to me. And he said, look at this. He said, I heard you were a nurse. And I said, yeah, the rumor's true. <laughs> what do you think looking at these labs? And I was, I, I'll never forget. I just looked at him and I said, really, really bad. I said, I didn't know Billy Rubin could be at 42. Hence why you're jaundice. I, I was just stunned at his, you know, his creatinine, his BUN just off the charts. And he said, well, I'm leaning towards a cancer diagnosis. Would that be possible? And I said, well, yeah, Dave's a firefighter and they're, they're, they do have a lot of cancers from their career choices. You know, I, I was just so shocked at that point. What are we going to do? The next thing I know, they're running Dave down to put a central line in. We've got to get Dave on dialysis. He's in full system failure. His kidneys are shutting down. His, his body was just completely shutting down. Okay. You know, I'm trying to go with the, the flow. We were there 24 hours. And one of the nurses said, Michelle, you need to go eat, get a snack. And of course we had white coat physicians in and out and in and out. And I couldn't keep track of who was who. And, and you're tired and you're scared and have no idea what's going on. Um, and I'll never forget it. She finally convinced me to go down and I came up with a banana and a granola bar. And the question was, how much do you weigh? And I said, oh no, you're not. I said, it has to be fixed wing because what they were going to do is life flight us. Mm. So at that point they said, we can't save him. We have no idea what's wrong with him. We know that every system in his body is shutting down and he's not responding to anything. Mm. So I called the fire department 
and said they don't know what's wrong with Dave, that he's actively dying, and we have no diagnosis. One of our guys happens to be a life flight person as well and had called ahead and said, you know, that's our captain and our princess, so they need special attention. They came and decommissioned all the trucks that we were led out under a corridor, which means they all stand Sorry, this does make me emotional and salute him as we were being driven to the airport to go over to Swedish Hospital in Seattle. And we thought that was the end because he was in full system failure. Mm. So at about two in the morning, we ended up in ICU at Swedish and with gracious nurses that actually let me stay in there, which is against protocol. Um and our fellow firefighters were called. And of course they came and visited and brought non Starbucks coffee with some vegan milk. <laughs> and I hit was given a hotel or a, actually an apartment, not too far from the hospital. So I could go shower and walk back and forth. And meanwhile, Dave's a nice to you. And, and, and nobody has a clue. Mm. He's, you know, on a tube, we've got an NG tube. They're pulling stuff out of his stomach. Um, and the doctors were coming in left and right. We don't know. We're looking at this. We're looking at that. To make kind of a long story short, I think in in one week, we find, we had 26 diagnoses. Wow. And I finally said, so then I'd call family and I'd call the fire department. Well, this is what Dave, well, just kidding. I don't know. This is not what he has. So they, they had gone in and re-biopsied his liver. The one and only time that was the joke. The one time I left to go wash my hair, they said there has been an accident in the ER. You need to come. We we nicked Dave's liver. Oh gosh, He's bleeding out. So I came running with a towel wrapped around my hair up into the, the ICU. They had managed to stop the bleed, but here he was, you know, with a drainage tube. Just livers are very vascular, and they they bleed lots. So we kept going on and on, test after test after. I cannot tell you the exhaustion. Um, and then trying to call family back, you know, and tell everybody. So it was kind of a crazy, it was a crazy couple weeks. I had a nurse practitioner that said, Michelle, can we do a bone marrow biopsy? And I'm like, well, if it's going to save it, you know, his life. Because she was on to something. She was looking for something very particular. She did the bone marrow biopsy and she said, you know, I didn't find what I was looking for, but she said something about that liver biopsy is really bothering me. She said, I'm going to go back and look at his slides again. She said, something's real, just, just gnawing at her. Mm -hmm. And she came back and she said, there's, there's phagocytes on his liver. She was the one, give it up for the nurse practitioner. Mm. That spoke to Dr. Lee over at Swedish, who this is, he works with HLH. We call him the God of HLH because he is very proficient and has worked with this disease a lot. And she got him and she said, I think they're on the wrong track. So originally after all of this, it was Memorial Week and I'll never forget. It looked like nobody would come in because I had gotten so angry with all these diagnoses. And I look out the glass plates of the, um, I see you and I, I see this circle of physicians and I, I jokingly said, are y'all playing rock, paper, scissors? Like who's going to come in and talk to Michelle? 
And it was Dr. Lee and he, he was very gracious. And he said, come on, I heard that you were angry and I understand, you know, we've given you so many diagnoses that, that, that you're confused. Can I come in and just talk to you and Dave? And I said, absolutely. And he said, well, here's the story. And he and the nurse practitioner explained and spelled out what histiocytosis is. And I was like, hold on, let me Google that. And here I sat with my phone Googling because I had no idea they could, was like speaking Greek to me. Mm -hmm. And he was the one who actually started between Dr. Lee and this nurse practitioner gave us the diagnosis. So at least at that, I said, okay, now we know the dragon because you can't tame a dragon that you don't understand. Now yeah. game on. So now the fight. So he, you know, of course I was texting my family and my firefighters and everyone's like, what the heck is that? Cause no one had even heard of it. Right. Um, and that, that's where, and that's where the fight began. And so after that, that was when the, the seven and a half months started. That is when that started. And Dr. Lee came in I saw him, he said, I, I need you to sign some paperwork and went and, and got a cup of coffee, got some paperwork. And he said, Michelle, I'm going to ask you for, for a little while. I need you to take your nursing hat off. And I need you to be Dave's wife. And he goes, I know it's real comfortable under your hat because you understand that world. And I want you to have some real hard conversations. And he closed, you know, up with the curtains, brought in some medical paperwork he wanted us to sign to make sure that I had full control over Dave's medical and that I would make the decisions, of course, with Dave's approval. Have coffee. And he said, I want you two to have the hardest conversation I'm going to ask a husband and a wife to have. And he said, I'll, I'll never forget it. And this does make me emotional because this is, this is a doctor. He held both of our hands and he said, I wish I could give you better news. I've seen this disease too often. And unfortunately, by the time we diagnose it, it's fatal. And I won't even give you a 10% chance. Mm. That being said, I want you guys to spend the next couple hours talking through everything that you need to talk through and put your affairs in order. And then I will come back this evening and we will discuss treatment. Wow. And oh, that's where it gets really, really hard. Um, I, I cannot imagine having to have those conversations and um, what happened in that room that day. Um, but I know that as hard as they were, that they were also precious moments to you, I'm sure. They were, and they were needed. And th the harder thing was, is we were over in Seattle. So I didn't have anybody to, except for, you know, of course the firefighters were amazing. And, and some of the wives came in and, did their best. The team of nurses over there, you know, fellow sisters were um, very, very supportive. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, there was a very respectful silence. You know, when they came in, they didn't say anything. And there was a lot of respect once they knew. Right. And I appreciated all of those who 
stood behind us and with us, Dr. Lee, Dr. Manriquez over here, who also was one of the most compassionate physicians I have ever met mm-hmm. in my 30 plus years. We need more of those. I was mm-hmm. like, tell him since he's a teaching physician, I'm like, make some clones and <laughs> understand the difficulty of having to face something like that. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Dave was so weak and so shut down in his systems that atopicide is the chemotherapy, the only, really the only treatment. And then we, you go on to a actually full immune system transplant through bone marrow. He was so weak, we could only start a quarter of the atopicide. Wow. So we were in pretty dire straits because people, and I, I have said my piece to a couple of physicians, they were so busy being busy that they weren't looking at the human. Mm. And unfortunately, that's part of our medical system. There's a big shift now to go to outcome-based instead of procedure-based. Instead of having to get all those procedures done, I I do feel for physicians when they have to see, you know, 32 people. Um, We've become too corporate, Mm -hmm. but there are those few shining stars Mm -hmm. that um, really touched my heart and were there for us that that I'm still in contact with. So I would, that's part of my, journey is to educate with love, but sternness and say, this is what happens. And I have this unique perspective of being, um, I myself am a survivor and I have, so I've been patient, I've been nurse, I've been spouse. And so I have this collective knowledge that I would like to pass on in a perspective to somebody to step into what the, how horrifying it is to hear these words. Mm-hmm. You're, you, you almost can't breathe. It's stifling. And Dave and I were medically trained. And how many times he said to me, can you imagine being in this system with this diagnosis and have no medical background because they don't understand and they believe everything the doctors are saying to them. And they don't, a lot of people won't, question a physician because they're an authority figure. I, right. I do not have that problem. <laughs> Good for you though. Good for you. That's like you said, that's, uh, that's needed. And um, especially going through something like this, you needed to get those answers and to figure out what was going on so that you could, you know, take those next steps in, in treatment and testing and all of that. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll hear the rest of Michelle's story, as well as the special messages she has specifically for patients and families, as well as the physicians and scientists researching these diseases. We'll be right back. Did you know that we have a physician directory on our website? To assist our members in identifying essential resources, the Histiocytosis Association has established a database of physicians with specific experience in the treatment of histiocytic disorders. 
The physicians that are listed in our directory have agreed to be included. And it's important to note that inclusion is for informational purposes only and doesn't indicate the endorsement of any particular physician by the association. Our physician directory is a searchable interactive map. You can type in your zip code, your country, and the disease of interest and find a physician that is experienced in that area as close to you as possible or as close to a loved one as possible. If you know a physician that is not included in the directory, you can email outreach at histio.org. Visit our website, go to www.histio.org, click on resources, and find the Histio Physician Directory. Grief, or deep sorrow, especially caused by a loved one's death, can be very difficult to navigate through, but there are resources out there to help you. Check out the Grief Resource Network at griefresourcenetwork.com for helpful resources and a directory of phone numbers to various agencies which may be of help. Or reach out to the Histiocytosis Association at 856-589-6606 so you can be pointed in the right direction. Remember, grief, although typically focused on the emotional response to loss, can also affect the physical, cognitive, behavioral, social, cultural, and spiritual parts of life as well. So if you or someone you know is struggling with grief, be sure to reach out for help right away. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Michelle Fay. Let's dive right in. So through this whole time, not only were you dealing with this, you were also displaced. You were displaced from home and you were living in this apartment and all of that. So I'm sure that, you know, that's something that you don't think about a lot because it, that wasn't the most important thing, but did that, did that start to affect you after all of this time? It did. And we had an option to stay at Swedish. Um, I also had a job, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I worked full time. So, and we actually had a wellness studio. So, I had, and we had a, a child still at home. So we had a, a, a lot and we live on a mini farm, as I call it. And we have livestock and animals. So there, there, it was pretty heavy on our mind. Being that we found the one doc who had seen HLH one time in Spokane, who was willing to take Dave. Um, they really wanted us to stay there. And I, I appreciated the firefighters and their wives and the nurses. But I said, you know, our support system is at home. And they really, it was, it was quite, it was quite a lengthy argument because they thought he would get better treatment. So Dr. Lee actually agreed to deal with Dr. Narendan, who was over here and guide him in, in the appropriate uh, treatment. So, because Dr. Lee understood mm-hmm. that it, the, all that exasperates. I, I went over there with a, a you know, my 15 year old making a flight bag for me, which, you know, um, he might've forgot a few things. So <laughs> I, they had to take me shopping cause I didn't even have clothes. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have a toothbrush and you know, all the, the simple things that we don't think about needing. Right. Um, so we made the decision to come back and be treated in Spokane because okay. we, it, it was just, we didn't want to be separated at that point, I, I felt that we needed to be together, but I had to come back to work and had to manage our studio and our home. Mm-hmm. Right. And 
just for some perspective, what is the distance between where you were and home? About six hours. Wow. Okay. So it's not, it's not a simple commute. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was not a simple commute. And we had talked about me coming over every weekend and, you know, it just wasn't practical because by the time I drove over there, I'd have to almost come back. And it just, it was a lot. Plus we had, you know, the support of the bless the firefighters who are always sending posters and videos to Dave. And that was a huge morale booster for him mm -hmm. as well. So, so let's, um, if you don't mind, let's walk through kind of the end of that, that story and how that all happened and what you were experiencing at that time. The end of the story was, unfortunately, our oncologist left and passed Dave's care to somebody who did not understand HLH. He continued, Dave had been prepped to go back to Swedish to do the, the immune system replacement. He was doing really well. In fact, Dr. Narendan, who I still speak to, said the day I sent you guys home was a miracle and one of the happiest doctor days. He said, Dave was a fighter. He said he, 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 he couldn't believe it. So he had set him up for the transplant. Unfortunately, some family issues called him to another state. This other physician took over as the oncologist. We went over to Fred Hutchins, who then decided Dave didn't have HLH because he didn't meet eight markers, only seven markers, and denied him his bone marrow transplant, um. which is still a very, very sore subject with me because mm. I wish I would have fought a little bit harder. Um, Dave actually caught a cold and the back, he was desatting at 53, meaning he had 53% oxygen, couldn't breathe on a Monday night. I took him to the ER and of course with his diagnosis, I was able to bypass, you bypass everything. Your physician comes in and says this person needs to be room now. So they don't leave him in the waiting room. And these doctors are working on him like, what's going on? And they said, he's having an HLH relapse. And I said, I beg your pardon. Mm -hmm. Well, he's obviously got HLH to which I won't repeat what I said. I was very, very angry. And this poor ICU doctor turned around and looked at me and said, he has HLH. And I said, well, that's odd because I have an oncologist saying he doesn't, but yet he continued to treat him and strip him of his immune system. So he had no immune system to get ready for the transplant. He so he's treating, so Dave's being treated for a, a, a disease you're telling me he doesn't have, but you're still treating him without the replacement of another diagnosis. Here's where my medical dander was super, super up. Mm. So unfortunately, Dave did not come home from that hospitalization. It basically liquefied his lungs at that point. Mm. Um, he had to be put on a BiPAP, which basically looks like a firefighter mask that should be able to breathe. Um, because we were against intubation because I didn't want to be the person that would have to pull him off life support. And we spent nine days in the hospital right before Christmas. I had come home to, I promised our son that I would take him Christmas shopping. 
And I had decided to decorate Dave's room with all his Dallas Cowboys fans because, yes, he was a Dallas Cowboys fan. They were playing the Colts. And I said, oh, you you can ask Christian about the Colts tonight because American football was big in our family. And I'll never I came in and he was laying on his left side and he turned over and he asked me to come over so he could whisper in my ear. And he he said white flag, which was our code word for I'm done. Hmm. That week he had been hypoxic and actually crazy out of his mind from lack of oxygen, trying to crawl out of a hospital window. Just they would call me at all hours of the day because mine was the only voice he would respond to. Uh, even if they put me on the phone. Mm. So it was just a week of just absolute, I had never seen, I mean, Dave was Mr. Rational, calm, cool, and collected. And he was just out of his mind, crazy with hypoxia. And so when he said white flag, I said, what do you mean white flag? And he said, please, I, I've been fighting for you this whole time and I, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. So please let me be done. Mm. And that's where the whole end really began. I went and got our attending physician who was a great guy. And he came in and he talked to Dave and I for about an hour. And he walked out and said, Michelle, Dave hasn't been loose at all week. I will declare him mentally competent. He just did what you were supposed to do. Consider it a gift and let him go out as the captain with his dignity as he would want to go out. Let him make this decision. I'm sorry, this makes me, of course. No, of course. I just stood there and cried. Mm. Sorry. And I said, you're right. So I went back in and I said, are you really telling me this is the white flag cap? And he's, he said, this is my last order as your captain. Mm. You don't have the hat just yet. I, it's my time and I can't fight anymore. I'm really suffering. And that's the first time you'd said that. So I'd asked, you know, to prepare the, the medication. I called all our family and all the firefighters and said, this was it. He didn't want to say goodbye to everybody, but I said, Oh, this, you don't get to skate that free. This is not for you. This is for everybody else. So I chose to give up my evening to, let all of his family and friends and they did the same thing where they decommissioned every truck in the Valley fire department. Mm -hmm. So everyone on could come one by one said goodbye to our family. His family got there, our kids, they got to have a last toast together, just all the guys. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried to make it. He had watched me care for my girlfriend who had, also had a very sudden rare disease and death. And he said, I want this to be like when Sarah passed away. I said, okay. So I knew what he was saying. So we did all that. And eventually at midnight, um, you know, we had our pastor there and we prayed and we sang and all the things that we could do. And one of the nurses said, now it's Dave and Michelle show. Everybody has to go home. Mm-hmm. And that's when we started pushing the medications that would that I had pushed a million times. They let me kind of monitor that um, so that he was comfortable. And he had asked a couple of things, one, to never forget him, two, to always 
talk about this so that he said, if you save one of my fellow firefighters, and if one person doesn't have to suffer, then let this be, don't let my death be in vain. Mm. And three, I don't want to die with my mask on. So we honored all of that the best we could. I, I had to, you know, I made sure he was comfortable. It's the scene that plays in my head often. And even I'm though sure. I have sat deathbed many times, this one obviously is a little different. Right, right. So um, I stayed with him and crawled in bed and we just snuggled. And, you know, our nurse was very quiet and came in what he needed to do. And when I was struggling, I or when he was struggling, you know, I'd say we need to don't let him struggle. That's the, the one thing I can't, I, I can't bear it. So we made sure he was very comfortable. And I had a friend who, a firefighter that really wanted to say goodbye to him that came in and was with me. And, uh, and we, he passed away at 847. And they let me pronounce that and were very respectful of the fact that that was my thing. Mm-hmm. That was, I used to say, this is, you may like him, but this is my human. This is my human that, that I'm attached to. So we had actually the nurses came in and brought me everything I needed. I did postmortem care. I think it's a, it, for me, it's closure. It's a sign of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Manriguez, who had started this whole journey with us, came up and held hands with us and was, again, a wonderful physician. And, you know, said, I want to honor Dave's life. I said, well, you are a teaching physician and you have been here since moment one. And so I asked that he would be autopsied and that you would follow that because I want you to take the knowledge of whatever we can find and what lessons we can glean. And you have the power to teach these young men and women to think outside the box because mm-hmm. now you have the power to spread, you know, knowledge and that that's what you're supposed to be doing. So that's how that ended. And of course it was a line of duty death and very dramatic and trying for all of us emotionally. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I cannot even begin to imagine what that was like. Um, and again, I, I, all I can say is I'm so sorry that, you know, like you said, your human is no longer with you. It's just, it's tragic. It's tragic. And it's so sad. What does it mean to you to know that you were the one that was next to him and with him until the very end and, and, you know, make sure that his wishes were followed? You know, it's part of, it's a cultural thing. You can, that's the most honoring thing you can do for somebody because it's something they can never repay you for. And it's done out of a pure love. I'm glad I have, again, as a nurse seen, you know, who's, it's very telling who's at the deathbed and who is not. Mm-hmm. But I, I appreciate the fact that we brought in family and friends that those last moments were spent on such an intimate level. So it ended how it started the two of us. And, um, I am very, I'm very grateful for my fellow nurses who, um, two of them happened to be Valley firefighter wives on duty that day and said, we are standing behind you. 
and they stood there and, and um, we're, we're standing behind you. We know you're going to do this, but we want, you know, we're, we're literally standing behind you. Mm-hmm. So I believe death is sacred. I believe it's intimate. Um, and people, I felt the honoring of his wishes again was the greatest act of love that I could produce at that time, even though everything in my body was like, Oh, this is just wrong mm-hmm. because you don't, you don't want to know, even though the clinical signs are there, that's where that really hard, as Dr. Lee had suggested, you know, you're, you want it, you'd rather be under your nursing cap because it's really easy, not easy, but it's easier to be in that clinical position instead of that heart position. Right. You can kind of compartmentalize a little bit that way. Right. And I think maybe take away a little bit of that sting. Mm -hmm. So I am, it's haunting. I don't think everybody, you know, it's not for everybody, but for me, it was, that was the way we had talked about. He wanted it to be. And so I am glad that I was able to honor that. I think um, last wishes are important to honor. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. I think it's something that we see a lot in um, other cultures where they they honor, you know, this passing of life in, you know, a little bit more sacred of a way. Um, but uh, I think that here in this country, we don't do that as much. So um, I think that was really awesome that you were able to be there and do that for him. And, and also, um, you know, like you said earlier about, you know, maintaining his dignity through the whole thing as well. Also very important, especially as a firefighter and, you know, with all that brotherhood and everything else. So um, just an amazing, amazing story. And, and what was, what was the date that this happened? Uh, December 17th, 2018. 18. Okay. So it's been a little while now, but I'm sure the sting is still, is still there. The sting is still there. And um, that's prompted obviously me becoming a histio ambassador Mm-hmm. it's it's cathartic but also i hope to maybe help ease or guide you know give whatever wisdom or comfort i can to other families bulldog for them as well <laughs> a patient advocate and to bring light and to speak to the medical community about a couple things one please pay attention if somebody is presenting at least entertain the thought Mm-hmm. that this could be a diagnosis. Don't discount family members. Don't discount somebody who knows this person. Mm-hmm. And also don't discount grief because while somebody's going through this process, like that last week and there's grieving that already is starting. Right. And we've, a lot of the medical community is so clinical and so whitewashed that they discount that the person or persons attached to the person with the illness are also deeply, deeply suffering. For me, it was, it was like, wait a second, this is what I, part of this is, this is what I do. I'm supposed to fix everything. I'm supposed to figure out the solution. I'm supposed to find the answers And so there was, I was dealing with all that on, on an emotional clinical human level. 
I did have a couple of, of the younger docs would come in every once in a while and say, we know what to do with Dave. What can we do for you? And someone just asking me that, what can we do for you? Sometimes it was, can I just have a, a fresh cup of coffee? Cause this really sucks. Or, you know, can I just, would somebody just stay here for five minutes with him because I, I need to just step out and I never wanted him to be alone. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and can I bring the dog in? You know, I brought his dogs in to, to visit him as long as he wasn't neutropenic, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there, there's a lot involved. Right. I, I, you know, humans are a complex entity and I would like to spread the word. And I, I want people to bring aware to, awareness to all of those aspects of what goes on with somebody grappling with. I am sure the look on my face when I got the diagnosis was one of utter you might as well have spoken Greek to me because I don't understand what's, what are you even saying to me? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting journey that needs to be discussed and not everything is solved on social media. And, you know, unlike TV shows, we don't just get a diagnosis and then 36 minutes later, cure somebody. That's, that's right. not reality. Right. So where do you go today um, when you're still feeling the, that grief? Where do you go for, for comfort or encouragement? The Histio Foundation, my newfound family, has been wonderful. Um, I tend to, um, I rescue dogs in particular and my horses, and I tend to really um, draw comfort from my animals. Mm-hmm. I have one friend at the fire department that understands that uh, the grieving process was held off for me by a little bit because, as he said, you're such a private person and you were, you're grieving on a public platform, which was incredibly stressful for me. Right. Um, no privacy. You know, I had newspaper reporters calling me just crazy stuff. So I'm finding, I am learning. I'm working with a therapist um, actually to learn some self-care to um, deal more with my grief and sometimes just speaking about it and just saying it, journaling about it. Um, finding ways to honor Dave is is a relief. And not to put the pedestal, but say, don't let this be in vain. I'm super excited to get out to to speak to physicians and nurses and practitioners in particular um, and say, please, this is so unknown. So I'm still working on myself. I think I thought I had to be super strong and bottle it all in. You know, I'm a nurse and I have to suck it up buttercup and all the things that we think we have to do. Um, So I'm learning to step back and step through grief because I've started doing some grief coaching. Um, Grief is not something you get over and you move forward. You move forward, but it becomes part of who you are. And I think as long as it's used in a positive light, it's okay. As long as you're not debilitated by the grief and it's okay to cry. Mm-hmm. song mm-hmm. will come on, you know, I shared some songs with you 
And you know, I still sing them. Singing to Dave when he was sick was, you know, the doctors would be like, that's the singing nurse. Like, yeah. well, I wanted to be a nun. So, you know, I'm the second best thing. Because <laughs> um, music touches me. I feel, I feel solace in music and dance and expression in those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The grief is definitely not linear and it's different for everybody. Um, people experience it differently. But I think what you're saying is so important to, uh, to lean into it a little bit and allow yourself to feel those feelings. Because I once heard, I believe it was Brene Brown that said, you know, when we cut ourselves, we know that, um, you know, we have, you know, hurt our body in a way. So why would we not think that when we're going through grief or when somebody hurts us emotionally, that we don't also feel that in our bodies? And so like we were talking earlier with, with, you know, being integratively minded, we know that everything is connected. And so to um, be able to kind of recognize that and recognize that if we don't kind of deal with this and move through it in whatever way that we need to, that's, you know, bio-individual for ourselves, um, then it will cause issues down the line. So it's really important to, to deal with those, those things as they come up and, um, I'm glad that you're doing that for yourself and finding some self-care and all of that. What would you say is um, the biggest thing that you've learned about yourself through this process? That I have given in at times to that perspective of you're such a strong person. Mm-hmm. And my new line is, but even Superwoman has to take her cape off. Right. I yeah. have found Things that used to be incredibly important to me are not. Um, I remember very specifically when I got the diagnosis, I walked outside and I said to my mom, the world looked different. The colors look different. I am finding that I won't kowtow to much nonsense. I, I believe we spent a lot of wasted time in things like work that are unnecessary, not that work's unnecessary, but some of the things we do and things I'm trying to, every day is just different. And I, I want to see the wonderment in it. Mm. I want to see what, what adventures will come today. Who am I going to meet? Who am I going to connect with? Or maybe it's just more of a silent day mm-hmm. to be more in my own space and to honor myself. You've been through a lot and you know, but you also know a lot. And so it's my responsibility to pass some of that wisdom on to Mm -hmm. people who need it, to start teaching, to start talking about grief, self-care. I'm actually teaching a class called Boundaries as Self-Care. I have set some very strict boundaries. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not available to people 24 hours a day anymore. Right, right. That was a real bad habit. I want to go for a walk with my dogs or sit and I'm remodeling a house or whatever it is. So I've learned that I don't have to go 24 hours a day. And life, can it can be a Monday and it can be just as wondrous as on a Saturday. You mm-hmm. know, but just, just mm-hmm. the little things. And they're more important. True friendship is important. Right. Yeah. A relationship, our relationships are the most important thing that we have, I think. Yes. And to, and to honor and to honor myself, you know, when I've every little accomplishment um, and that's a, a Brene Brown, you know, I, I really enjoy her, uh, her vulnerability uh, education is fabulous. 
to honor when I've made progress, to honor when I'm sad, to just honor it. And it, like we teach in yoga, it, it is, there's no judgment and stop judging myself because perfect isn't real. Mm -hmm. Right. Such an important message. Um, You talked a little bit about working as an ambassador and um, I know that you've also continued to work with the firefighters. So what are you doing with them and also with the ambassador program that will continue to kind of fuel you to go forward? I am going to get permission to come and start speaking with the firefighters, mm-hmm. whether it be with Zoom and just educating them as well. I had done some research and I found a couple of other firefighters who have passed away from HLH. Wow. So I'm starting to see a little theme maybe coming on. Interesting. It's not on what they call their presumptive list, meaning it's a diagnosis that they recognize that firefighters die from. Mm-hmm. So I am doing my best to research and get that out and hopefully eventually will change that so that if another firefighter dies of HLH, it is on the presumptive list. I want to work with some physicians, like how, what is it, what is it that a firefighter would get secondary HLH? Um, you know, they're exposed to a lot of plastics because things that burn now aren't wood and a lot of chemicals. So I I really am hoping to bring Histio and um, the international together in terms of education. Mm. And that's just one part of my educational piece because obviously my heart is really for our firefighters first. Um, And and just, you know, I have their support in in terms of, of that and working towards making that a presumptive illness. Right be interesting to to dig into that more and see kind of what that is, how that all happens and and all of that. Um, be an interesting study for someone to do for sure. Huh. Yes. <clears throat> and I'm hoping even uh, as I mentioned, I'm a college student that um, because I am still that is under the uh, College of Nursing at ASU and ASU is very um, innovative. I am hoping to get some professors involved in maybe some research and really I've, I've been very vocal in my um, college community via my professors, cause I'm online to how do we start a conversation? Is there somebody who would like to take that on in the research department? Um, because you guys pride yourself, you know, innovation creation and, um, I'm hoping to bring all of that together and be the bridge at, at, at even at ASU, because I think bringing it to a, a university level could, could spark some interest with some professors. Right. Absolutely. It'd be interesting to see that come down the line in the future. Yes. So, yes. and I'll say, I remember when I talked to Michelle, <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been a fascinating story. Uh, it's one that I think that we do need to talk about more um, and, and talk about those, those cases that don't turn out the way that we hope that they do. Um, but before we end, do you have any final thoughts or comments that you'd like to share specifically with the Histio community, especially 
those that may have also experienced the same kinds of things that you did? I would invite people to reach out as um, if, if you need any comfort or just to talk. Um, we're a supportive community. We understand. I think just having somebody listen is so important. And just to say, I understand because I've been in a similar set of shoes because I was not in your shoes exactly. Um, I would encourage, if you can, to rise up and start speaking about HLH to other people. If you can reach into your community, I would encourage those of you who aren't, if you could become ambassadors, help us spread the word. Um, but again, let's join together. I, I could see a little group of us maybe, you know, Zooming once a month just to have a chat. And just talk about what is going on. What what does life look like after the the devastation that this disease has caused you, your family, your community? And what do we do from here? How do we carry on? How do we carry the legacy and honor that person and and contribute and be part of the solution to eradicating this disease? Right, right. It's a great message and some great ideas as well. So finally, um, what do you have to say? What message do you have for the doctors that are out there that are diagnosing and treating and researching histiocytosis? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish that physicians and researchers would sometimes strip that medicalness, that clinical whiteness away, listen to the heart of the people you are serving. Remember why you became a physician was to serve your fellow humans, but listen to the stories because in a story, I believe you will glean something that will help you in your research. It will grant you a better understanding of maybe where things started because as in my case, hindsight is 2020. And I really think it started almost two years prior to mm -hmm. Dave getting ill. Mm -hmm. Again, meet with each other, support each other, talk to each other. Don't get into the egotistic parting, you know, I'm doing this, listen to each other as well. Share ideas. Do th I love think tanks. Mm -hmm. Throw ideas out. But when you're doing research and treatment, bring people in like myself who can also be part of that team. Collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. And don't stop. I know this is a tough thing to research and there's so little, but be the innovators, be the ones going forward and saying this is unacceptable that we can't seem to diagnose until it's fatal, especially in secondary HLH. Um, and be hopeful, never lose hope because you will crack it. Mm. You will figure it out. You will get that, that one or two leads that will be the aha moment, as I call it. Let's think outside of the box. Let's test that bone marrow. Let's test that liver because the earlier you catch it, that is the only chance we have to correctly diagnose it 
and to treat it. (sighs) What a time this has been. I just want to thank you so much for being brave and for sharing your story. Um, I think this is part of, of, you know, your honoring Dave and um, fulfilling his wishes is talking about it. You said that was one of the things that he asked you to do was to, was to talk about this. And so I just wanted to honor you and acknowledge you for doing that for him. And um, just thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, I know that I speak for the rest of the Histiocytosis Association when I say we are here for you for whatever you need. And, um, you know, you have some very powerful and noble work ahead of you that you've taken on. But I I don't know, spending this hour with you, I believe this bulldog can do it. (laughs) Well, thank you. That that's the plan, right? (laughs) Uh huh. So yeah, again, thank you so much. We just, um, it's just been a pleasure speaking with you. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. So there you have it. What an amazing, heartbreaking, yet powerful and inspiring story about the ugly side of this disease told by a courageous and inspiring woman. We all love to hear the feel-good stories about those who have survived histiocytosis and are now thriving, and we'll definitely continue to bring those stories to you because we all need the hope that those stories provide. But I think it's just as important to hear the difficult, heartbreaking stories as well because they remind us that there's still so much work to do and so much further to go. But we can only get there with the support of people like you, our Histio community, because no one cares more about these patients than you do. So please visit our website at histio.org to learn more about how you can get more involved, ensuring that these somber stories become few and far between. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Michelle for her bravery and courage in sharing her story on our podcast, to willingly recall the sting of grief that may never fully go away. She definitely takes her role as a Histio ambassador and a dutiful wife seriously, and is doing everything she can to fulfill Dave's three final wishes to the best of her ability. And not only is she doing an amazing job, she's also inspiring the rest of us to greatness, which is exactly why I wanted her to share her story. So thank you, Michelle. Now let's follow her lead, and as she said, we've identified the dragon, now it's game on. I hope you found value in today's episode and feel touched and empowered by Michelle's story. If you liked this episode, please consider leaving a review, sharing with a friend, leaving us a comment, or taking a screenshot of the episode and tagging us on Instagram at histiocytosis underscore association. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you're notified every time a new episode of Beyond the Diagnosis is released. Remember, we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for a podcast episode, you can email it to podcast at histio.org and put podcast idea in the subject line. For links to websites, studies, articles, or other resources referenced in today's episode, be sure to check out the show notes. As always, we've so enjoyed bringing you this episode of the podcast and look forward to sharing our next episode coming soon. Until then, take good care.